0: After two years, uh, one day I was shopping, doing my, my Saturday shopping, and I got a um, message an email with a photo of the defendant in custody in Mexico. And I'll never forget that day because uh, it was like, wow, all that investment of time and resources, it's paid off.
1: Welcome to Crime News Insider Podcast. This is Jorge Del Portillo, and with me, as always, is Lori Hoff. How are you doing, Lori?
2: Hi, Jorge. How are you?
1: Good. Nice to see you. Nice um, to see today, you. Yeah. Today's episode, we're going to talk about extraditions and fugitives and, and how to extradite people. There's been a lot of recent news coverage of high-profile defendants being extradited or fighting extradition. There's the Huawei CFO who's accused of fraud charges in New York. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, who was recently extradited to LA to face charges there. The WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange Assange, who's fighting extradition to the United States. And then here in San Diego recently, I saw on the news a 25-year-old suspect accused of a fatal shooting down in the gas lamp district was just extradited to San Diego from Arizona. You know, prosecuting. Cases in a border town like San Diego, we see many defendants fleeing Mexico. Lori, have you ever had a case where someone fled to Mexico?
2: I have. In fact, I think that I think what we're going to find when we talk to our guest is that it's it's very common. And my case that I that I can talk about is it's it's it happened around 2010. It was a 13 year old girl who uh, moved in with her mother. Um, She was with her mother. She moved in with her uncle, who was her father's brother. Essentially, he started sexually assaulting her pretty soon after she moved in. And it went on for a while. And it happened usually in the early morning hours after mom went to work. And she didn't say anything. Her uncle told her, you know, that she couldn't say anything, that that bad things essentially were going to happen there were lots of threats to her. She was afraid. And the the way it came to light is that um, the mother, her mom was doing laundry and in her pants pocket, she saw a letter from the uncle and she recognized his handwriting. And Mm. he said, I want to, I need to talk to you. You're not answering my calls. Um, I promise I won't try to have sex with you. And so that prompted mom to say to her daughter, what is going on? And her daughter just laid it all out. And this is what's been going on. And oh. I'm afraid, I'm afraid to tell you, I'm afraid what's going to happen to our family. And mom actually confronted the uncle and he confronted the uncle and and he fled to Mexico that day, out, just yeah. gone. Yeah. Uh, they didn't know where he was. They They didn't have, I can't remember if they had leads or not at that time but that was so that was 2010 and that wasn't even my case i i was almost brand new attorney then but i i ended up inheriting the case hmm. at, around 2014 and i um the reason that i that it came up again was because we were able to this is where the extradition comes in we were able to i got an email and it said let's start looking for these witnesses let's gather them up we can't right. give them you can't give them a heads up that that we may be able to get this guy but we need to have them start signing affidavits. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about the process because it's involved and it is intense. But we we were able to bring everybody in and uh, get them to sign their affidavits. And and we'll talk about the procedure. But that led to us ultimately two years later getting him back to the United States. He ended up going to state prison, you know, without this extradition process the ability to get somebody from another country fleeing because they don't want to be caught, right? But eventually bringing them back here, we were able to bring justice to this case and to this teenager who endured so much during that time that she had to live with her uncle. So it really, really signifies to me the importance of just not giving up, not giving up, even though it's a tough case, a tough case to prosecute, tough to find people, tough to bring it all back together. And often these cases can grow cold, but it's so important.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, it's one thing to extradite someone from another state, but it's a whole other thing to extradite them from a foreign country. Yeah. That, that sounds incredibly difficult and a long process. I'm glad in your case, it worked out. Um, so with us today to talk about extraditions is the extradition unit extraordinaire, <laughs> the expert on extradition, Sylvia Tenorio.
2: Well, I'm happy to introduce I, Sylvia because she yeah. is my she is my hero. Sylvia Tenorio um, <laughs> just recently retired from our office, but she has been a de- deputy district attorney at the San Diego DEA's office since 2000. She received one of our prestigious Woody Clark Uh, awards for prosecutorial excellence in 2017, and she's just basically a, a recognized statewide expert on extradition law both domestic and international, because uh, they all go through our extradition unit at our office. She is the founder and the co-chair of CDAA's Extradition and Foreign Prosecution Committee. She's taught a bunch of courses all over the state and with law enforcement, but she also previously worked at the Department of Justice Office of International Affairs. So she is is uh, well-versed and connected in terms of how we we do extraditions, and I really relied on her so much in terms of getting through a, a very difficult process, especially working with Mexico and um, all of the loop, the, the, the hoops that we have to jump through. So I'm so I'm so excited to welcome you, Sylvia, to our show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Welcome, Sylvia. And also, Sylvia, I believe, if I remember correctly, was used to be a defense attorney for a short period. Is that right? Yes, very short period. A very short period and was a star juror on a trial that I did when I was a misdemeanor prosecutor probably about 10, 12 years ago. So- I
0: remember that. I think that was your last trial as a city attorney before you came over to the DA's office.
1: That's right. That's a very good memory. It was my very last trial. So it's great to have a a prosecutor on your trial. Um, So Celia, can you walk us through and tell us how do you go about extraditing a suspect or a fugitive that's either in a state or in a foreign country?
0: So yeah, two very different processes. Uh, For the state process, um, I work very closely with the assigned vertical DA, basically the biggest problem or the biggest challenge is being able to work with the other state prosecutor. The First thing I do is I pick up the phone, I make contact with that prosecutor, I make them feel invested in our case because ultimately they're representing us in the asylum state. So I, I explain the case to them, why this person is uh, worthy of their time to go down to court and actually Uh, have them put up a good fight in setting bail. That's the first challenge so that the defendant doesn't post bail pending this extradition process. Uh, If the defendant elects to waive extradition, that's the best option because then we have approximately 30 days to go pick up the defendant and bring him back to San Diego to stand trial. If, however, the defendant challenges the extradition process, we have 90 days to obtain a governor's warrant. So the, Mm -hmm. the reason the law allows us 90 days is because it's in recognition of the fact that there's several agencies involved. So once I put together the requisition for a governor's warrant, it's then reviewed by our state attorney general and then the governor's office. And then it goes to the other state where it's again reviewed by the attorney general's office in that state and the governor before that governor signs the the warrant. So it's pretty involved. Blessed to have a great staff here at the DA's office. Shout out to Joseph Ortega, who does a great (laughs) job. He's my right-hand man on these cases, or was. And uh, we've never missed a deadline, even through COVID, where it was tough to reach people, where courts were not necessarily doing the right thing and setting bail. So it was challenging, but I'm happy to say we didn't miss a single deadline. And the case that you mentioned when you started the the podcast uh, was one that I was involved with. And um, yeah, it, it was very, it's always very satisfying when people think they have, uh, are, are beyond the long arm of the law and we tell them otherwise and we bring them back. In the international arena, as Lori has mm-hmm. alluded to, much more involved. It's a very resource and time intensive process. And the way I explain it to people is that there's at least 11, yes, 11 federal, uh, and foreign agencies involved in the extradition process in the international context.
1: Uh, so United States agencies? Just United 11- States
0: agencies, and then once it goes to the other country, there's several agencies there that are reviewing our work before wow. the, the judge in the foreign country says, you know what, there's enough here, I'm going to sign the warrant so that they can go arrest this guy. With Mexico, for example, we're obviously involved in putting together that Package and that package consists of a prosecutor's affidavit, investigator's affidavit, and then any percipient witness or victim affidavits. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, we're educating the other court, the foreign court, on this is our law, this is how uh, this person is going to be uh, provided a fair trial in this country if they're returned. I, that's a big concern for Mexico. They're very defense oriented and they want to ensure that we're going to comply with our law and ensure that this person gets a fair trial. Uh, In fact, uh, we recently hosted about two years ago, some Mexican judges, and that was their biggest concern. So I gave a presentation on that issue to
2: them.
1: wow!
0: So once we put that package together, it goes to the Department of Justice where I used to work, the Office of International Affairs, and they are charged as the central authority under the treaty. So we have to go through the, the Department of Justice. They approve all of the requests that are sent to a foreign government.
1: So this is a treaty between the United States and Mexico that you're operating
0: under? And the United States has entered into approximately 110 treaties with foreign countries on extradition. And so there's very few countries where a person can flee and be beyond the reach of the law. And I understand- hear that out
1: there yeah. <laughs> warning to our audience members. Anyone's tuned in to try to figure out which countries to flee to. you're not going to I've actually learn it here.
0: Googled it and there's some sites which give oh, advice okay. as to where to flee. <laughs> but, um, so then from the Justice Department, it goes to the U.S. Department of State. They ensure that we're in compliance with all the treaty requirements. Then it goes to the embassy in the uh, foreign country. And we're represented there by a legal attache. Who reviews our request again, and then puts a diplomatic note, delivers it to the foreign prosecutor, because we are represented by a foreign prosecutor in the other country. And then it goes to a judge uh, who specializes in extradition law at the federal level in Mexico. Uh, they review the case. They decide whether there's enough to issue a warrant. And then uh, Interpol Mexico, the International Police Organization, works closely with our marshal service or the FBI to try to locate people. Our agents do not have authority to make arrests in a foreign country, but they do uh, provide support in other ways. So yeah, it's a a long and involved process and that's why it takes one to two years uh, from the time we seek extradition until someone uh, sets foot in jail here in San Diego County but it's a very collaborative effort. Uh, it's all about relationships and the relationships that you build and the trust that you build with these agencies. So that uh, when I call the department of justice and say, Hey, we've got this urgent case, any way you
2: could put it to the front of the pile. Um, and you know, the other thing that I, that struck me when I, the, the first one that I did that I mentioned earlier was how, how detail oriented we have to be and, and how accurate we need to be because when you mentioned all of those agencies are reviewing, you know, the that, you know, the date ranges, the date of births, the everything, you know, the minute details of, of where and when and and the things that you know you might be able to if not not even just just potentially overlook have to be um, so perfected. Yes. And a lot of it too
0: is because we want to ensure that our case is bulletproof and the defense, uh, because the fugitive will be appointed defense counsel in the other country, and they will obviously try to attack everything. That's why we try to send down pretty much a tight, bulletproof package. And um, got to say, we've been pretty successful. We've extradited over 35 serious and violent offenders, uh, from Mexico, uh, from Canada. We've had some expulsions from Taiwan. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we have a pretty robust extradition practice, as Summer likes to say.
2: Now, do you feel like Sylvia, sometimes you are that you have to be the squeaky wheel and how do you, how do you do that when, you know, there's a, there's a huge waiting game that we have to play. Yeah. It, like
0: I said, a lot of the uh, this practice is ba- based on banked trust. So the fact that, you know, the Department of Justice knows that we do everything possible to comply, to submit good requests, um, I think later can be um, a withdrawal from that trust and say, hey, you know, we do good work. Um, is there any way that you could help us out? And it's important because just as a matter of context, I think the uh, Department of Justice currently has 1500 cases on their docket and they have less than 10 attorneys to handle all of those cases. So, you know, I know sometimes when I speak to prosecutors, you're like, well, why does this take so long? Well, because we're working within the confines of the resources we're given. And 1500
1: cases that are waiting extradition from various countries.
0: From from very well, this is just Mexico. This is just Mexico, Central America. Yeah. So um, the uh, the Department of Justice has specialists for every country. But yes, just the Mexico team and the Central America team, less than 10 people and 1500 cases. So I feel for them. Um, When I worked there, it wasn't as busy due to changes in the law. But, you know, we have to respect that and and You know, understand that they're gonna help us as much as they can, but sometimes they just can't do faster. So
2: Sylvia, are there is there any is there a case or cases that you can talk about that stick out to you in your time and extraditions that you're proud of?
0: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I I was very privileged to have worked with Jeff Duschek. I don't you know if you recall him, but he was probably the most prolific litigator in our office ever. And um he came down to my office one day and he said, Sylvia, I cannot retire until we get this guy back. No pressure. Oh. <laughs> and uh, wow, was it a worthy case? Um, the defendant was accused of sexually assaulting and murdering an 84-year-old woman in her Carl's mm. bad retirement home. And uh, then it was a cold case, basically. Um, it was a DNA case. So at that point, we had not submitted any dna cases to mexico so that was the big challenge is translating that science to a mexican court in a way that was easy to follow so i worked with jeff and mackenzie harvey after two years uh one day i was shopping doing my my saturday shopping and i got a message an email with a photo of the defendant in custody in mexico and i'll never forget that day because uh it was like, wow, all that investment of time and resources, it's paid off. And I believe he is currently serving 34 years to life. The most gratifying part of that whole process was uh, working with Jeff and Mackenzie, but also meeting the daughters of the victim and to see that they were so happy that justice had been served. Yeah, that was probably one of the most gratifying cases. I've also had The privilege of working with Valerie Summers on a couple of cases. I'd say most of our cases are FPD cases. Um,
1: FPD being a Family Protection Division in San Diego. Yes, Family
0: Protection Division. So uh, I also worked on the Armando Perez case. This is the DV homicide where he killed uh, his 19-year-old wife on the City College campus. That was very gratifying to see him finally see justice in a San Diego court.
1: See that's amazing. Yeah. Like ninety nine percent of prosecutors, I would wager, don't know anything about extradition law, and we have to rely on you uh, to to guide us through it. So uh, no pressure or anything, but but uh, that sounds like amazing work. And and thank you for
0: oh, you're for welcome.
1: for that. Um,
0: I got to tell you, that was the impetus actually for starting the CDAA committee because I knew there were people that in the state that wanted guidance, had never done a case like this. I mean, imagine some of the smaller counties with limited resources. Sure. Their biggest concern is, you know, this is going to bankrupt our county because in the the past we would have to pay for all the translation costs, which for a garden variety case, a homicide case was about $5,000. So it was nice to start the committee and we're a tight-knit group of practitioners that know this complex area and we help each other. It's not uncommon for us to pick up the phone, like with the Harvey Weinstein case, and uh, talk about it and, and
2: support each other through the process. So that that was very important. You know that that's a really that's a really nice legacy that you've left because even though your expertise is not not being used on a daily basis, you are you left a, a process and a procedure for that to continue, and I think that's really important.
0: Thank you, Lori. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention is we we don't just do fugitives. We have evidence that, say, a prosecutor needs that's in Hong Kong or in another country. Um, In that situation, we invoke what we call the MLAT, the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. And the United Mm -hmm. States has entered into MLAT treaties with several countries, I think over 100 as well. Um, and this basically governs the exchange of evidence. And I know that many times we use informal methods to get evidence from other countries, but if you want admissible evidence and you want insurance that um, you'll be able to use that evidence in a San Diego court of law, it's best to go the MLAT route. And even for things such as interviewing witnesses. So I worked with family protection on a case where most of the evidence was in Japan. And I knew. Uh, the prosecutor did not know and neither did the investigator that Japan is very protocol driven and that if you intend to conduct any investigation in their country, they need to know about it and they need to approve it. Otherwise, you're subject to arrest. So
2: uh yep. I hope you told them before they went over to Japan.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> we did. And we, we laugh now because I was just talking to that prosecutor last week and. He said, "You know, I ended up getting like some really nice dinners because when we went to interview witnesses, the Japanese federal police were <laughs> extraordinarily kind, and you know they were very appreciative that we worked within the confines of the treaty. So yeah. it really does provide you an insurance card, so that you know that you know you're not subject to arrest and that you're." You doing might
1: that extradite you them. to Japan uh, exactly, if you, if you exactly.
0: so That's another part of what we do too—not just um, fugitives, but evidence.
1: Okay. Okay. And going back to the Harvey Weinstein, um, you know, he was extradited from New York to LA to face charges here, but he was already serving a 23 year sentence out in New York. So he comes back here to face charges. Do you assist with like, you know, after he's done with trial, I'm assuming he goes back, whether he beats it or not. um, Do you assist in that process at all? Or do they have to then extradite him from California?
0: Yeah. So the Harvey Weinstein case was somewhat different. He was, as you indicated, a sentenced prisoner. So when you have a sentenced prisoner, we don't invoke extradition law. We have to use what we call the interstate agreement on detainers, and that's basically a compact which is sanctioned by Congress, um, where all states agree that if there's a sentenced prisoner in their jurisdiction, they will cooperate with the state that needs that needs to prosecute them, and surrender that person if we comply by, it's a really long drawn out process, but a lot of forms back and forth, but it's essentially a contract between two states. You let us borrow him. And we promise that after we finish prosecuting that person, we will return the uh, fugitive to you. And once he's completed with his sentence, like say in Harvey Weinstein's case, once he completes his sentence in New York, and if he's convicted in California, then he will come back to CDCR to complete the California portion, but that's generally the order of things. And in the Harvey Weinstein case, um, I consulted with the LADA's office. I mean, that's really where this whole teamwork approach uh, comes into place. You know, I I know the DA there very well. She's a good friend of mine. And we had a lot of phone calls about, okay, this is what they're challenging. You know, how do we defeat it? So that was the beauty of of CDAA is, is making all those connections so that later we could help each other. And she was able to defeat all the challenges. So He's back. with with the help
2: of Sylvia Tenoria.
0: Yes. Oh well, I doubt that. No. Shout out to my friend Diana Carvajal. <laughs> she, she's excellent. Yeah, she's in LA.
2: Well, you've 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 done so much over your career. You've you as as Jorge mentioned, you've been a you've been a defense attorney, you've been a prosecutor, you've been a juror, a uh, star juror on Jorge's Starger. case. Yes. Um how do you look back on your career and and the role of a prosecutor in our criminal justice system you
0: know i i was just incredibly proud and of, of having played a supporting role in this whole process and truly ever since i was a kid i was very i was a rule follower and always wanted to make sure that everybody followed the rules and we did it right and i ended up in a career where my job was to ensure that We follow the rules and that we eventually see justice in a San Diego court of law. And I've kept several emails that I've gotten throughout the years and cards from victims. And I read them from time to time. I brought them home with me and it really serves to remind me that it was a fulfilling career and I couldn't have asked for more. Uh, Serving with DAs that supported our mission, like Summer has been so supportive of this mission And um, would basically support me in any way that I needed if I asked her. So that was incredibly important. And I also think it was important, you know, that I was recruited to fulfill this specific job um, when I came to this office 21 years ago. So it's good to have someone with that kind of experience. But the office will do well.
1: Uh, yeah, you left yeah. some <laughs> big excuse to fill. I
0: know. I <laughs> know will do well. They will do well. And I, I've been proud to serve this office for 21 years. And I look forward to the next chapter. But it's been a
2: pleasure working with everyone in this office. It really has. Well, Sylvia, you've 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 done so much. And you know, the it's really nice to see this side of the criminal justice system where you see you know, it's the tenacity of it, really. It's, it's the, you know, it's a slow, slow churning machine sometimes, but it's really nice to see, especially with your, you know, your help that it comes full circle and it can, it can come full circle and people can um, see a conclusion to a case or um, a defendant be brought to justice who, when, especially when you have a family member that's lost or a child molest, like my case, it's really nice to see it come full circle.
0: And I would encourage people, we have a uh, captured and convicted website on the DA net. And I, th- I think it actually is public where we post the names and the um, result in the cases where we sought extradition. It probably needs to be updated, but it's a good way of seeing uh, the work that the unit does
1: in black oh. and white. Oh, that's great. I'll, I will, If it's a public one, I, I will put that in the show notes so everyone can see it. Sylvia Tenorio, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for your service and your dedication to the public.
2: Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. But we're not done, Sylvia. Jorge has more for us. Oh, no. Yes.
1: yes. <laughs> we always end the show with a quiz where we look at the laws on the books. Ah. Three are real. One is fake. And you, as, your, as an expert prosecutor, you have to decide which one is the fake. So All right, three I'm are real. Right. I'm sorry. I said, I'm ready. Are you ready? Okay. She's on it. Okay. So uh, here we go. Item number, or well, let's start this as an A, B, C, and D quiz because it's an actual, now it's like a PMBR or MPRE. Okay. A, in Wisconsin, it's illegal to implant microchips in humans without the person's consent.
0: That's so wacky. It's probably real. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I got three more. Hold on. Okay. B, in Iowa, it is illegal to check into a hotel or motel using a false name. C, in Georgia, it's illegal to live on a boat for more than 90 days. And D, in the United States, it's illegal for citizens to leave the United States without a passport unless authorized by the president.
0: I think three are, one's true. The third one is true. On, I would say number two is not true.
1: Yeah. Number two is not true. Okay. So in Iowa, it is illegal to check into a hotel or motel using a false name. Any thoughts behind that?
0: I don't know. It it would, it would actually make sense to have a law like that. So it probably is not true.
1: So it's probably not true.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so D D is, wow. I think I heard that it's illegal for citizens to leave the United States without a passport unless authorized by the president. So my, my, I was gonna say D is false, but I've I've been on a losing streak lately. So well, you know, the, the part about the
0: president, I, that part I didn't hear, but I think the illegal part is true.
1: But no assistance that's... from the audience. No assistance <laughs> from the audience. Lori has to selected this one. Yeah. I, I'm
2: selecting D, but you know, I I uh, I should I should just Not okay. I'll listen to myself anymore. (laughs) I'll be different. I'll
0: select B. What the heck? Okay.
1: Okay. do You select B, and Lori, you were saying D. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So that means you all agree A in Wisconsin it's illegal to implant microchips in humans without the person's consent. Who is doing this? You all think this is a law on the books, and this one is a law on the books. This is Wisconsin statutes and annotations. One forty six point two five one and two. No person may require an individual to undergo the implanting of a microchip. Anyone that does so is required to forfeit not more than ten thousand dollars. That's it. <laughs> That's <laughs> so it? Okay. If you're so, if you're rich and you want to microchip some people, you could go out to Wisconsin. Apparently, I was reading uh, this is um, they were the first ones to kind of pass it and some other states. Copied it, including California. Um, and as you can see, this whole theme is if you're if you're a fugitive, what are the different laws uh out there? So, um, anyways, you cannot implant microchips. So if you want to be a fugitive and go out there, don't worry about it. Uh, let's go to uh C. You all agree in Georgia it's illegal to live on a boat for more than 90 days. You think this is a law on the books, and this one is real. This is a law on the books. It used to be 30 days and then it got switched to 90 days in nineteen ninety two. They initially made it illegal to spend more than 30 days on a boat in one calendar year. And there's a lot of rundown floating houses on the river there. And so <laughs> they said no, no more of that. So you could, if you're on the lamb for 90 days, go out to Georgia, live on the boat. Uh, let's go to B in Iowa. It's illegal to check into a hotel or motel using a false name. Sylvia thinks this one is a fake, and Lori thinks this is a law in the books. And this one is. A fake. Uh, oh, Sylvia got Sylvia's it. That's good. The extradition extraordinaire expert. Oh my gosh. Um, I read that in New Hampshire that it's illegal to use a false name to check into a hotel, but then I couldn't find a law there. So I didn't want to say it, but it sounds like it could be a law somewhere on the books. That all means D, in the United States, it's illegal for citizens not to enter, but to leave the United States without a passport is a law on the books. It's eight USC. Section 1185B, except as other, otherwise provided by the president and subject to limitations by the president, it shall be unlawful for any citizen of the United States to depart from or enter the United States unless he bears a valid U.S. passport. So,
0: So I yeah. wonder if the president delegates his authority to like the Department of State to issues and passports. I don't know. That just...
1: Yes. And it says um, uh, limitations and exceptions as a president's may authorize and prescribe it. So there's Mm -hmm. probably some delegation there. uh, But uh, I I I think
2: I think the reason that I didn't want to pick D is because one time I forgot my passport when we were going to Mexico. And I was afraid when I came back in that they weren't going to let me back in. They let me back in, which was very (laughs) nice of them. And I didn't get charged with anything. So I was really hoping that D was the false one
1: what Apparently year was that and are we past the statute of limitations <laughs> no, <laughs> comment.
2: I, no comment
1: No you know when i i went to college in san diego and we used to when we were under 21 over 18 legal drinking age in mexico was 18 and we would go down to mexico and drink and we we didn't have a passport um so i think this is a i think it's new it's newer it's
0: probably yeah. post 9 11 i don't know that's mm. my guess but yeah um, well, that was really fun. I'm glad you guys do that. Um,
1: Great job. Yes. Lori has been uh, uh, now on a losing streak. She, she was winning I know. You know, like crazy. And then we started perambulating around and, uh, <laughs> and, and now uh, two in a row, but she she always does a good job. She always does a good job. This one was a tricky one.
0: Well, thank you again, both of you. I was um, just really honored to have been asked to do this and hopefully, you know, I'll, still keep in touch. I'll be coming back uh, probably in four or five years and be back in San Diego. So I look forward to, it's just a, a brief, a brief holiday from San Diego, but I'll be back.
1: Okay, great. Well, thank you for so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for all the work that you, you've done for San Diego community and really the state of California. So thank you, thank you
0: so much, you guys have a good one. Thank Thanks. you.
1: Bye, Bye everyone. And until next time, this is the Prime News Insider Podcast. expressed on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA's Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be submitted through our website at sdddaa.net. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.